Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Here in Job 19, in verse 23... Job says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Verse 24, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, there Job expresses some things that you know, certainly, as you see the progression of the Word of God, um, you know, later revelation revealed more clearly how many of those things would play out. But you see, uh, Job has that idea of a redeemer, redemption. Um, Job understood that. He understood that he needed to be redeemed. Um, you see that he, he says, I know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Now, he's not talking about the, the first advent, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, right? Uh, and, and Job, not only does he say he knows that that's going to happen, but he says that even though this body is going to be destroyed, even though worms would destroy this body, even though his reins would be consumed within him, he understood that he was going to be resurrected, and in his flesh, in, in a resurrected body, that he would see God, and that he would see it for himself. Now, he's not talking about seeing God in heaven. He's talking about, you see, on the earth, his Redeemer standing on the earth, and Job being resurrected in a body of flesh to be able to see him. Now, that's a lot of things for Job to understand way back there, uh, even before the the time of Moses. But uh, you see those things there. And that's what, what we're going to be looking at today as we continue to look at these prophetic events. We've talked about the, that, that seven-year tribulation period. Today, we're going to be talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that event that Job describes there when he says that his Redeemer will stand at the latter day upon the earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ will, once again, stand here on the earth. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. And the Lord's second coming is going to be very different than his first coming. In Christ's first coming, he came uh, meek and lowly. He came um, to, I mean, ultimately to be rejected and to suffer and die on the cross of Calvary. That was the reason why he came. The, The reason why Christ came in his incarnation was not to be crowned as king, but it was to go to the cross. But when Christ comes in his second coming, it's going to be a little bit different. And in Revelation chapter 19, John describes the the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Let's just start in verse 11 of Revelation 19. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
Now, the last time the Lord Jesus Christ rode into the city of Jerusalem, he was riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. This time he's going to be riding on a white horse of war. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that when you study the book of Revelation, you know, earlier in the book of Revelation, there's a rider on a white horse as well. But that rider on the white horse is not Christ. That rider on the white horse is a, is a really a, a spirit of antichrist. But here, the real Christ shows up, and he's, he's riding this white horse. He's the one that's called faithful and true. And it says, in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Now, he does this in righteousness. Now, there's a lot of judging and making of war today, but it's more often done in unrighteousness than it is in righteousness. Uh, there's very, very few, um, you know, wars that have been started in the history of man that you can say it was done in righteousness. Okay? But uh, here the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. It's interesting that in, in uh, most of the books of the New Testament, they begin by expressing from God grace and peace. And you know, judging and making war is just the opposite of that, isn't it? I mean, the opposite of, of grace would be to, to judge. The opposite of war would be peace. Um, and so while today God is extending grace and peace to the world, at Christ's second coming, he's not going to be extending grace and peace. The time for grace and peace is over with. He comes to judge and to make war. It describes his, his appearance there in verse 12. It says, His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it... He should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. As it describes that sharp sword that goeth out of his mouth, the word of God is likened in the book of Hebrews to a, a two-edged sword. It says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is uh, discerner of the uh, thoughts and intents of the heart. That same weapon that Christ is going to use to defeat his enemies there at the, at the uh, second coming is the same weapon you and I have available to us in the battle that, that we're engaged in, the word of God. And what John is describing here is he's describing a literal, visible, physical return of Christ to the earth. This is not a spiritual return to the earth. It's not an invisible thing that nobody can see. But it is a return of Christ physically to the earth. And, and you see the description there. Now, um, in, in verse 17, it says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now, what's being described there is what's often referred to as Armageddon. And earlier in the book of Revelation, there were spirits that went out to gather the kings of the world to this place of Armageddon, which is the Mount of Megiddo. And they aren't gathering together 
uh, when, you know, when you hear, you know, you read different, different things that people write about this battle of Armageddon, these armies aren't coming together to fight against one another. They aren't coming together to, to have, you know, just a, a big war among the nations of the world. They're coming together in unity to fight against the Lord himself. That's who they're fighting against. That's who their enemy is. It's the united nations of the world in, in uh, war against the Lord himself. You see that? It says they gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And what a, what a, a foolish thing to think that you could make war against the Lord himself. It shows you the, the level of deception that will take place there on the earth where they are going to believe that this one sitting on the white horse is not truly God. They're going to believe that that Antichrist is God. That one who sat in the temple of God and, and showed himself that he was God. They're, the people on the earth are going to believe that and they're going to believe they're on the right side of the battle and that they can defeat this one on the, on the white horse, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as they, as they gather together to make war, verse 20, it, uh, the, the uh, description here of the battle, verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And, and it's interesting how the, the description of the battle takes place here, because before the battle even begins, the, the commanders, the leaders of that, you know, those gathered nations are just snatched up and cast into the lake of fire. Verse 21, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls that were, were filled with their flesh. Now, Christ there returns, and it describes the armies of heaven that come with him. In other, other passages in the Bible, it describes how he will come with ten thousands of his saints. Those armies follow with him, but you see, the armies that follow with him don't really have much to do in the battle. It's Christ that fights the battle, and it's Christ that wins the battle, and he does it by the word of God. He does it by that sharp sword that proceeds out of his mouth. I hope you understand the, the power that you wield when you... Stand for, for the word of God when you proclaim it, when you uh, memorize those things and then speak the things of the word of God. That's power, right? That's spiritual power. You may not realize it. It's not, uh, certainly when you speak the word of God today, it's not manifest in a visible way like is described here. But it's power nonetheless. It's spiritual power. And, you know, we, we too often are neglectful of that word of God. We think we're going to fight this battle in our own strength. And, and you know, when you've got a, a weapon like that at your disposal to, to try, and, try and fight in your own strength instead of, as Ephesians 6 describes, uh, to, to stand in the power of the Lord and in his might, um, what, a, what a, uh, you know, what an inadequate way to, to fight the battle. But uh, you see how that word of God goes out and the enemy is destroyed. Uh, in fact, you can, you can go back to the book of Zechariah, see another description of this same kind of battle here. This is the, or the same, not the same kind of battle, but the same battle. Um, go back to Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter of the book of Zechariah. Uh, in fact, you know, when it comes to Bible prophecy, people spend 
probably most of their time studying Bible prophecy in the book of Revelation. But you know, there's very little new information in the book of Revelation. Revelation is, is basically taking so many of these things that you find in these other prophets, and it kind of, kind of systematizes them and, and uh, lines them up chronologically in some cases and that kind of thing. But there's very little new information there in Revelation. Uh, here in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's the same gathering of the nations that, um, that we read about there in Revelation. It says, The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now, in Revelation, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, sitting on that white horse. You see here in Zechariah, it calls him the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah God. Jesus Christ, if it's not evident to you already, there's another passage you can add to the list that makes it evident that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. Jesus is Jehovah. And so it's the Lord himself, Jehovah himself, that goes forth to fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And verse 4 describes his, his physical return to the earth. It says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is a, a, a place that in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ often played a, a prominent role. It's on the Mount of Olives that Christ teaches many of the, you know, most of the teaching that Christ himself taught about prophetic events, he did on the Mount of Olives. And I don't think that's any accident. I think he did it uh, because that's where those events are going to take place. And uh, you see, it describes how his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And, and notice this, the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. When Christ sets his feet there on the Mount of Olives, there's a crack in the earth that opens up. And the mountain begins to move, and half of it moves toward the north, and half of it moves toward the south. It says, Ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Uh, in verse 8 it says, It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. And, um, you know, today that, that area is a very mountainous area. Right? I mean, it's, it's mountains all over. If you look at it on a, on a map, you might have maps in the back of your Bible that show that area around Jerusalem. And, and it's an area all of mountains. But even at the return of Christ, there's even these, these extreme geographical changes that take place. 
Uh, notice in verse 9, it says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Lord and his name one. Notice verse 10, All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate under the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel under the king's wine presses. Those cities that it mentions there, it says it's going to be a plain from Geba to Rimon. And you can look those up in your, in your Bible, where they are at, up to the north and to the south of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is there near Jerusalem. And when Christ sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, it's not just a little crack that opens up. It describes it as a great valley. And not only that, it says the whole land is going to be a plain from Geba to Rimon. Now you can go to that area today and there's there's no plain anywhere in that area that it describes. But uh, you have these changes that take place in this river that's going to run out from the sanctuary from Jerusalem and, and uh, go out toward the Dead Sea and toward the Mediterranean Sea, two, two rivers running each direction. The book of Ezekiel describes that river as well, that river of living water that's going to go out toward the Dead Sea, uh, that even is going to change the, the chemistry of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea today because nothing lives in it. Um, I think the only, I, I think there was an article I read where they, they've identified one form of algae that lives in the Dead Sea. That's the only life there at all. Because it's so salty, nothing can live there. But as Ezekiel describes this river that's going to go out from Jerusalem, it's going to flow to the Dead Sea, and it's going to heal the Dead Seas. But um, it describes these changes that take place at the, at the second coming of Christ. Um, that area from Geba to Rimmon, by the way, is, a, is an area of about 40 miles, I believe, if I remember correctly. It's an area of about 40 miles. It's all going to be a plain, except for the, the Temple Mount itself. Uh, they're in the, in the middle of it. And, and so you see this description of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and changes that take place on the earth. He, he comes fighting a, a battle. Go to Isaiah chapter 63. You know, we, we often maybe have a, a tendency when we think of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to maybe, maybe romanticize it. Um, but, but remember that he's coming to judge and make war. In fact, this battle that's fought here uh, is, a, is a bloody, bloody battle that takes place. In fact, I mean, in the book of Revelation, you can read some of the description of some of those things regarding that battle. But uh, here as well, Isaiah 63, verse 1, says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Now, Edom is off to the east of Israel, off to the east of, of Jerusalem, and that's the direction that Christ comes from when he returns. Uh, it says, This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments, like him that treadeth the wine fat? Remember in Revelation there, it said that his garments were were died with blood, and he said that, that he had been treading the winepress. Verse 3, now is Christ's response to the question. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now, when you read that passage in Revelation about Christ's garments, being stained with blood, you may think it's talking about his own blood. And certainly we see in the scripture how Christ shed his blood for us. But it's not his own blood 
that his garments are stained with there. He says their blood, the, the blood of these that he tread in, tread in his anger and trampled in his fury, their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And he says, I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And he says, I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now, when he says, my own arm brought salvation to me, that's nothing that any any mere man can accomplish. Your arm can't bring salvation to you. My arm can't bring salvation to me. But Christ here is talking about his strength being the source of salvation. And you see, again, he describes treading down the people in his anger. Luke 17. Let's just start in in verse 22. Luke 17, verse 22 says, He said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here, see there, go not after them, nor follow them. All right, he's talking about that, that uh, tribulation period as well. I mean, this would have certainly been true even in the lifetime of, of these disciples that he's talking to. But again, he's describing to them how he's going to go away, right? And they're gonna, there's going to be this period where they're not going to see him. And people are going to come and say, Christ is here, Christ is there. And he's warning them, don't... don't uh, Follow after them. Verse 24, For as the lightning that light, lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. This, was, this return of Christ is not going to be something that's hidden where somebody's going to be able to say, oh, you know, Christ is out there somewhere. Well, if he's here, people are going to know about it. Uh, verse 25, it says, But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. As it was in the day of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And, and you know, this, this period of time leading up to the second coming of Christ, despite all of the judgments that God pours out on the earth leading up to it, mankind is going to just, just go on as if nothing's happening. Um, and, and if anything, they're going to be fighting against the Lord himself. Uh, he likens it to the days of Noah and the days of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. In... Um, in verse 31, it says, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember, we saw this in another passage. He said, he said those things apply to when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple. And he says in verse 32, Remember Lot's wife. Now, do you remember Lot's wife? Remember what happened? As, as God was seeking to deliver Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were not to look back, and Lot's wife looked back, and she was turned into a, a pillar of salt. And the warning here to these people is, when you see these things taking place, don't be like Lot's wife, who was, whose heart was back there in that city, and, and delayed to go, and looked back to see what, what was happening to that city that she loved, but rather, he, he tells them, you know, be, be willing to leave, don't look back, don't return back. 
Verse 33 says, Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. And notice verse 34. Verse 34 says, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now this is a passage that people have often used to to say that that's talking about the rapture, right? That there will be these two people together and one will be raptured and the other one will be left here on earth. And, and they uh, try and teach that out of, out of passages like this. But we see here in Luke, and this is why, why we came to the Luke account, not the Matthew one, because here in Luke, Christ clarifies who it is that's taken. All right? And you see in verse 37, it says, And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Right? He says, he says there's going to be these two people in one bed, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. There's going to be two in the field, one taken, one left. There's going to be two at the mill, one taken, one left. And the disciples say, well, where? Taken, taken where? They say, where, Lord? And he said unto them, notice what he says, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. The ones that are taken in this passage are not taken in the rapture to heaven. They're taken in judgment, and their bodies are going to be out there for the birds of the air to eat. And you saw it there in uh, Revelation where it talked about the birds being called together to feast on the flesh of kings and, and those things, right? And, and so when I say we romanticize the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly for, those, for that believing remnant that's looking for his return that goes through that tribulation period and is, is prepared for out in the wilderness, his return is a glorious thing, but it's a, it's a day of judgment. It's a day, it, you know, it's not the... the final judgment in the sense of the great white throne, but it's a day of war. It's a day of death. And, and you see these unbelievers that are, are taken and killed and their bodies put out for the birds of the air to eat. There's, a, there's a, a, a cleansing, a purification that takes place on the earth at the second coming of Christ. And what he's doing is he's, he's purging the earth and preparing the earth for that kingdom that he establishes after his second coming. Now, we're going to talk about that kingdom in more detail next time. But uh, this, this day of the coming of the Lord, you see um, him coming in that role of judging and making war. And all of that, you know, we, we often, maybe we kind of, we kind of uh, minimize or, or we, we sort of underestimate what God's view towards sin is, right? And, and I think many people have the idea that when, when Christ returns, it's just going to be good for everybody, you know? And, and certainly, again, he's going to establish a kingdom on the earth where his word is going to reign. And, and that, but realize that for these unbelievers, for these people, these people who would have taken the mark of the beast, these people that were worshiping the Antichrist, it's a day of death and destruction. It's a day of judgment and a day of wrath that's poured out on the earth. In fact, you can read other, other passages in, in the Bible that describe this destruction is going to be so great, it's going to take them years to clean up all the carnage from the battle. And there's going to be, you know, people are going to be finding bones all over the place from these decayed bodies. Um, but for the believer, for those saints that are there to see that day, that's the return of their Lord. And, um, and again, next time we'll, we'll look more at that kingdom that he establishes at his second coming and, um, uh, you know, the purpose for why he comes and, and purges the earth in that way and cleanses the earth in that way. But uh, 
we, you know, we as, as believers, um, we, we can look forward to the day when all sin is dealt with, when, when uh, God's judgment is revealed, and when he sets right things. Here, here it's talking about the earth, things being set right on the earth and a kingdom established on the earth. Um, but, but eventually, and eventually in our study, we'll get to even where he creates a new heaven and a new earth altogether. And these are things that have to take place in order for that, that, you know, that final new heaven and new earth to, to come into play. Um, some, like I say, many times we, we kind of take a lighter view towards sin than what God does. I think often we do that because maybe we, we misunderstand. Uh, you know, certainly there's grace and peace available to us, but realize that judgment for sin, that same kind of thing that you see manifested there at the second coming of Christ, that's what Christ suffered on the cross for us. That's the only, the only way that God can offer grace and peace to anybody is through the suffering of death and through, through his judgment being fulfilled. And these people who refuse to, to uh, believe on Christ, who refuse to accept that gift that was available through him, they're insisting on suffering that judgment themselves. And that's what you see displayed there at the, at the second coming of Christ. And, you know, the good news, the good news for us is you can escape that day. Um, that's, this is not something the, the, the scripture says of, of believers that we're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never trusted on him, if you're trusting on your own, your own arm to save you instead of Christ's arm, um, if you're thinking, if you're thinking there's anything that can save you besides him, we saw there in Zechariah, how the Lord looks out and there's nothing that can provide salvation except his own arm. And I would encourage you today, make that decision today to stop trusting yourself or stop trusting whatever it is you're trusting instead of Christ and trust what he did for you. Trust what he did by his own arm in taking your sin upon him, paying the price for it, suffering the judgment of God, the just judgment of God in your place and receive that gift of eternal life. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.